You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dunnis, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA today, it is your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I'm a little, I'm a little out of sorts this week. Yeah, I, I can't blame you. Seems like it's been a long, long week. Yeah, nine days, uh, mostly in the pediatric intensive care unit with my 18-month-old uh, for a long time suffering from a mystery illness. And then a few days ago, they figured out that he had uh, mycoplasma, which what? Which the layman refers to as walking pneumonia. Ah, uh, okay. And so... Uh, How long did it remain a mystery illness? Uh, well, we went in on Sunday, and I think they diagnosed it on Thursday. They had to get house... They yeah. call in house. Yes, on that house one? came in to, uh-huh. to diagnose it. No, like they had given him uh, the nasal swab to test for viruses and and uh, bacterial diseases, and they had given him like taking a culture from his his uh, uh, phlegm basically and tested that, and he had been negative for everything. And then they gave him a blood test on Thursday, and it came up positive for uh, walking pneumonia, which was good because uh, even though that's a serious diagnosis, like. We knew exactly what what was wrong with him at that point, and it was bacterial, so they could treat it with uh, antibiotics. So today is Monday. Uh, he, I think he's going to come home this afternoon. Wow, that seems quick because I, I did not realize exactly. I mean, you told me a little bit like, oh, I think you know he has pneumonia, won't be able to record a show today. And then later, I got a text from you, and you're like, well, he's off the ventilator. And I was like, whoa, I feel like I missed a few steps. Yeah, he was on a ventilator, uh, I think from either late Sunday, or it all kind of runs together. Uh, But I think either late Sunday or Monday until uh, Friday or Saturday. And then they, you know, they, they transitioned him off that. He's been on like a high flow breathing tube until last night. And then he was, he was spent all last night with no uh, breathing support on into today. And so it seems like he is, he is basically recovered. He's still going to be a little bit uh, crummy when we bring him home, but uh, he's, uh, he's bounced back, man. It was, it's a, uh, there were, let's just say there were pros and cons. Okay. Really? Yeah. Okay. The pro was, I got to read all of the sisters brothers. Huh? Uh, so I'm ready for the book club. All right. Coming event podcast book club coming up on, uh, November 30th, November 30th con. Like we thought he might die. Yeah. That seems like a pretty big con. Yeah. But you know what? All of the people at the, uh, community hospital pediatric unit here in Missoula were just awesome. They were amazing. We didn't encounter anyone who wasn't just gold standard over there. So they took really, really good care of all of us. Uh, and he's going to be, uh, He's going to be okay. You know what the worst part about this is? Uh, That we thought he might die? Second worst part about this uh, is that now, because you dealt with this serious, like, illness with one of your children, I don't even get to complain about how much vomit I've cleaned up in the last couple days from my children. Like, nobody even cares about that now. I saw that there was a a stomach issue working its way through You kind of big-timed me, is what happened. Yeah, I know. I'm always going to do that. It's just one-upsmanship. It's... Frankly, it's a disease that you have is a one-upsmanship disease. And, you know, I, I was wondering, 
because my wife and I were talking about how when you have more than one child, like with the first one, you feel like you overreact to every little thing. Yeah. And then with the subsequent children, you feel like maybe you make the opposite mistake, like you underreact. Uh, and I know I've definitely done it with my kids, like being sick, especially with the second one, because you're like, ah, I've been through all this stuff before. Like, at what point did you guys know, like, we got to go to the hospital? Well, it came on really suddenly also. You know, uh, we've had some some illness in the family. As you know, basically the co-main event podcast from week to week is is just a damn mash unit. It's a basically. Petri dish, yeah. Uh, it's all, it's like an MMA fight because we never record this podcast when everyone is 100%. Never 100%. Never. Uh, so, he, you know, we've all had been a little bit sick. And then, like, last Saturday he was up with my parents, with his brother and sister all day. When he came home Saturday night, he was really, really sick. We put him to bed and he woke up on Sunday uh, and was still just very, very sick. So he had like a morning nap. My wife and I both went up and looked at him while he was sleeping. We're like, wow, he's really like he's really sucking air. So I took him to the walk in clinic and they they tested him. They tested his uh, blood oxygen saturation like they do with the, you know, the sensor that goes on your foot or your toe. No idea, but okay. You've never taken a child to the doctor? Uh, I've never had them do the The uh, glowing red light that they put on their finger or toe. No. What, do you guys go to some weird, like, witch doctor? Yeah, we go to a witch doctor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, his his oxygen level was really low, and so they were like, man, you need to take this kid to the emergency room. Which, frankly, I was a little skeptical about, because I've been sent to the emergency room before with uh, with our older son, because he always runs a really high fever when he gets sick. So I was like, eh, are you sure that I need to go to the emergency room? Because they always just, I sit there for like four hours, and then they send us home. Yes, I've been like, vomited on in the emergency room waiting room by and, one of my and children. And the, then they were like, uh, no, we're going to put an oxygen mask on your child and you have to drive him to the hospital right now. Okay. So at that point, uh, we went to the emergency room and he was there for, for nine days. And you were like, but Moncton, the UFC is in Moncton this yeah. weekend. No, I was super bummed to miss Moncton. So now that. here's the, the, for the benefit of listeners and viewers here. The fun part about this is that you roll into this week's podcast, basically knowing nothing that's happened over no, the last, but- you know, Nine, ten days. Yeah, MMA. the theme of this podcast is Ben explains what's happened in MMA. So, oh, this is fun. It's your show now, dog. It's your time to shine. You're oh, never, you're, you're never going to believe this. Yeah, Demetrius Johnson, Ben Askren, they're switching spots. So Can I, you emer- believe it? I emerged from this cocoon of of like uh, standing vigil, basically at the hospital. Look on my social media, and I see these reports about. Uh, a possible trade between Demetrius Johnson with for Demetrius Johnson and Ben Askren between the UFC and, and one FC. Uh, and it just made me feel like this whole thing must've been a fever dream. Yeah. Like none of this was real. Couldn't be real. It was all just a hallucination of mine. Yeah. You want to know what else is, is funny? What? You want to know who, who else had walking pneumonia? Who? Me. You're you, what you were describing as your back to school cold. That yeah. was, that was pneumonia. Turns out I probably had pneumonia also. So I went to the uh, walk-in clinic myself and they gave me, Azithromycin, a Z-Pack. Huh. Uh, I'm feeling much better. Thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, I was interested. You told me that at one point you're in the hospital and that you're talking to the doctor. Yep. And you mentioned that you write about MMA for a living. Yeah. Well, <laughs> tell, tell us about his reaction. So you know how it is yes. when you tell someone what you do for a living. A lot of people don't know what MMA is. Even the the ones who do know are probably less likely to believe that it's a job right. that you could write about it. For Sometimes you get a lot of eye rolling. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling a medical professional <laughs> uh, what I do for a living. And he kind of crosses his arms and leans back against the wall. And I was like, okay, <clears throat> here it comes. Here comes the, uh, 
the talk about how brutal and, and like what a blood sport it is. He leans back against the wall and he goes, so Derek Lewis. <laughs> and I was immediately just like, yes, here we go. I found my people. I found someone I can I'm talk here. to. So, uh, and you he, just said, yes, his balls, his balls was very his hot. His balls was hot. So we talked about MMA for like, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. Did he offer any kind of medical insight into overheating of the balls? No, didn't have much to say about that. Uh, we agreed that as a fan of mixed martial arts, uh, you have to make some some personal, uh, I don't want to say sacrifices, but you got to make a... You got to turn a, off some sections yeah, of the brain. Yeah, you got to turn yeah. off some sections of your brain. So he, you know, he might be listening to this right now because he found out about the podcast. He said he was going to check it out. Uh, he's uh, an amazing doctor, saved my child's life. And that, now he's going to move to Nebraska to go work at a... Uh, at a hospital down there. So Missoula, losing a terrific doctor. Nebraska, you're getting a good one. Well, I wasn't expecting that to take that turn there at the end. Where are you, uh, where are you at on the book club? You going to reread The Sisters Brothers? I'm going to reread it. Are we going to have a field trip to go see the movie, if that's possible? If it's possible. I don't it's even know. It's in town right now. Is it? It's playing in town. I've heard from other people who have read the book and then saw the movie that not that bad. That's basically the review that I've heard. Yeah, the trailers make it look all right. I mean, as I was going through it again in the hospital this week, I was reminded what a goddamn great book it is. It is. It, I'm, it might be my favorite book. Like, it's that good. The Sisters Brothers is just amazing from start to finish. The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt, by the way. If you want to join us for the book club episode on November 30th, many of you know how that goes at this point. We all read a book. You guys can send your thoughts uh, the way that you typically email the podcast. We're going to get together to discuss the book. We'll read uh, the best responses that we get from you guys. It's all, it's always a really good time. We just did Fletch a month or so ago. If you guys want to circle back to find out how the book club goes. For that one, we were joined by your wife. That's right. I think we're going to be joined by both wives this time. Does that mean you're actually going to remember to tell your wife about I, it this time? I already did. Okay. I told her we're doing it. And uh, I think she's going to join us. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, how we doing, Ben, on the Patreon? Because another funny thing that happened as basically as I was taking my child to the hospital is that we went over the 800 person threshold that triggered some fun stuff. That's right. Over for the Patreon. So we're at 810 right now. Nice. We were not able to do a Patreon power hour episode of the show last week because I was otherwise indisposed. But, uh, you know, knock on wood, I think we're going to do that this week. That's right. Coming up on Friday. And we got UFC 230 coming up to, so we can talk a little bit more. We also have, uh, we don't want give, to give away anything right now, but we have some fun ideas on how to, to make the, the Power Hour a little different, give you something a little different in the Power Hour. Um, so looking forward to that. Also, the barn door closed at 800, like you said. Uh, so that means we trigger all, all kinds of rewards. Uh, stickers. Koozies, the Power Hour, our newsletter where we tell you all the fun things, the tips for the well-rounded fight fans that we've been checking out, reading, watching, uh, being exposed to in the world. So yeah, we got a bunch of fun stuff that's coming now. We should point out, even though we use the metaphor, the barn door closed, if you join the Patreon moving forward, you're still going to get the stuff. Yeah, you can, right? still, you can still get in that barn. You're still going to get the sticker and the koozie and, and, and whatever else. If you want to get down with the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, you go to patreon.com slash co-main event. That's right. And since we passed 800, that means no more Channing Tatum trivia. Oh, man. Instead, until we get to 900, we will do Channing Tatum personal quotes. Okay. All right. Good. You ready for your personal quotes? I don't know if I was more excited about Channing Tatum trivia or if I'm more excited about the quotes. The more you try to look sexy, the lamer it is. So you just have to commit to the comedy. 
All right. Yeah. Not That's too a bad. Channing Tatum quote. Good one. I guess we should move on. We spent a long time talking about personal issues here. Uh, we got music this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter uh, at The Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you guys know by now, that's the word the with an A. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, it's MMA Hot Stove Action. As the UFC is on the verge of trading Demetrius Johnson to 1FC for Ben Askren, which is a thing that can happen, apparently. And in round number two, at the UFC's function in Moncton, Anthony Smith shows no compunction in his adjunction with Vulcan Ozdemir. Is Smith a 205-pound something? Or are we headed for another light heavyweight malfunction? That was not bad. Okay, I... I I was really ready to be upset about that, but that turned out okay. And in round number three, Daniel Cormier versus Derek. Wait, Daniel Cormier versus Derek Lewis is this weekend? Can that be right? I have a lot of things to tell you, Chad. Whew, all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. I feel like I'm operating at like an eight. Yeah. Kind of at an eight this week. What do you feel like you're usually at? Nine? Operating at a nine or ten? Nah. Well, maybe the maybe it goes to twelve. Maybe the scale. Goes <laughs> yeah. Okay, to 12. that's what I need. I mean, maybe if it goes to like twenty-seven, then you're usually at a nine or a ten. I'm not at a hundred percent. Let's just say that. First question of listener mail this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson. She writes, uh, "While I realize that UFC Moncton wasn't the most stacked card, being in attendance, front row, baby, oh, nice. I feel like I was extremely enthused about fights that I wouldn't otherwise have been." Uh, but maybe to a different extent. For instance, Calvin the Bird Whisperer Qatar's fight was extremely entertaining and maybe slightly ironic in considering he's in the featherweight division. <laughs> I get it. And I hope that he gets a new UFC contract as I feel like he's a great addition to the division. It would only be better if he and Gregor, the best fisherman in MMA, Gillespie, were in the same weight class to see if birds or fish rule the world. Also, I'm used to extremely late fight nights being in AST. What do you think that is? Alberta standard time? It must be some kind of Canadian time zone that I'm not familiar with. That is so like them to have their own time zones. Just keep it a secret from us. Here I thought we lived in the weirdest time zone. However, it feels ironic that being at the event live, the seven hours felt like only a few hours, whereas I feel like watching it from home, it would be more like 32 hours. I'm assuming you've both seen many events live and wonder how you feel about live events regardless of the card versus watching them online slash TV and how it changes your perspective. This is a good question. It is. Both because when you like, obviously when you're there live, the time flies by faster than it does when you're on television, when you're watching on television. Uh, and in fact, I recommend if you're going to go to a live UFC event, go for the whole thing. Yeah. Cause watching the prelims can be kind of awesome. Uh, especially if you go in Vegas, usually it's a pretty sparse crowd. Uh, you you're know, front row in Moncton, right? Like you really hear the punches connecting in the quiet right. arena. Uh, you know, yeah, you can you can get a different perspective on the sport than you than you generally do from watching it on television. Uh, the time flies by faster, and there's something about being in the arena for a fighting event that is different than any other sporting event. Wouldn't yeah. you agree? Well, everything feels just like louder and bigger and closer, which I guess seems like it ought to be obvious. When you're there live, you can really tell when the punches hurt. Yes, because they are hard. Well, yeah, and the the moment of a finish feels a lot more dramatic when you're there live. Uh, just without that remove of the TV screen, like you, the the sense of danger is way more palpable when you're there live. And plus, 
I think it gets kind of embedded in your mind differently as an experience you are a part of rather than as a thing you watched on TV, which again makes sense. But I can remember, you know, I've been to tons of UFC events, tons of MMA events, but I can really, really remember the ones where I was there for it, even if it wasn't that consequential an event or that consequential of a fight. But, you know, you bring up some fight and I'll remember, okay, I was at that one and it it got filed away in my memory differently than just another night on the couch watching fights on TV. Yeah. Uh, I still remember being in attendance for UFC 52, uh, which was Matt Hughes versus Frank Trigg, the one that, you know, is the first or second greatest fight in UFC history, depending on which uh, list you're looking at. And I still remember the moment, you know, after Hughes suffers that low blow and it looks like he's going to lose the fight and then he battles back to his feet. The moment where he picked Frank Trigg up and carried him across the octagon to slam him, uh, I believe that we were in the, uh, you know, it's like the MGM Grand or, or wherever we were in Vegas for that. There was like this weird, like almost moment of silence when Matt Hughes scoops him up, like every single person in the stadium stood up at the same time. And it was like, we all gasped at the same time. <laughs> there was just this like, <gasps> and then, and then the place just went bananas. Yeah. And yeah, you, a lot of that you don't really get if you're just watching it on TV. And also if you're watching it on TV, you're sitting through the same damn commercials over and over again. So it really can't help but hit the, the pause on whatever level of excitement that you have when you're at the event and you're just, that is your entire world is inside this building. You're get way more caught up in kind of like the dream state flow of the event rather than having it constantly broken up for you. Next question this week comes to us from a Croatian footballer, Ivan Rakitic. Okay, good to hear from him. Many have tried and over half has, have succeeded, he writes. With an undefeated record of 13 and 15, the GOAT, Artem Lobov, was talking about a move away from the UFC if he can't get one of Khabib's henchmen next. Not sure he's in a positive position to negotiate now, but what precedent are the UFC setting if they don't just cut this dude by now? Yeah. He, this is three straight for him. Yep. And I believe two and five overall in the UFC. Uh, the, can we talk a little bit about the Artem Lobov, the goat um, kind of meme? I don't know if we even want to, want to call it. A, I mean, there are memes about it, but it's just kind of like a running joke among like a certain kind of MMA fans where it's like the fun thing to do is to pretend like Artem Lobov is the greatest. And it's, you know, a, a very MMA fan kind of joke to do because it's insular. It's it would make no sense to people on the outside, right? And yet, if everybody gets in on it, it can still be kind of weirdly fun. Yeah. Uh, and Chuck Mendenhall wrote a column about it. Okay. Uh, after this loss, and he did a good job, kind of examining like here's how this thing has been going, and here's the the weird thing about Artem Lobov's place in the UFC. Uh, John Kavanaugh, the coach. Both the coach of both Conor McGregor and Artem Lobov over there at Straight Blast Gym in Dublin did not seem to appreciate it, huh. uh, and kind of called out specifically the, the Chuck Mendenhall column, but also went around being like, "Well, hey, wins and losses aren't everything," which true, yeah. fair point. They are something though. Yeah, they do count. Mm-hmm. They do keep track of them on your Wikipedia page, and that is kind of like what you are selling to us, the audience, when these fight nights rolls around. Is you're telling like, okay, this guy who is at this position because of his wins and losses is going to fight this guy who is at this position, and the winner will go here. Like that is kind of the ongoing sales pitch. So yeah. you can't kind of selectively decide that 
this stuff doesn't matter. And yet with Artem Lobov, he's in such a, a weird position because it seems like you're not getting a co-main event spot coming off a loss and when you've lost two straight unless you're Conor McGregor's buddy, right? Because right. it's not like he – I mean he puts on – Pretty good performances. I think you can say, and John Kavanaugh made the point, like it's not like he's getting completely blown out in these fights most of the time. But then again, if that's the best thing you can say, that that says something. Yep. Uh, he he's a tough guy. Obviously, uh, he goes out there and gives it his best, and yet it's not like he's even doing the thing where he's you know Leonard Garcia and giving you a crazy slugfest every time. It's just kind of like okay, he's trying hard. I feel like we're talking about Artem Lobov the same way we used to talk about Paige Van Zant a little bit. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, he's okay. not getting destroyed. He's a tough guy. He's trying as hard as he can. It's the highest level of the sport, right? If you're not trying as hard as you can, if you're not a tough guy, uh, you're probably in the wrong spot. You're saying that's the baseline cost of admission. At this point, with three straight losses, if there's no reason to keep Artem Lobov around and accept that he's bros with Conor McGregor, right? Like if he weren't bros with Conor McGregor, Artem Lobov would not be a person that gets mentioned on this show. Yeah. Well, I mean, he wouldn't be a person who gets in the co-main event, which wouldn't make him. He would be completely unremarkable in all ways if he wasn't bros with Conor McGregor. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that makes him remarkable is that the the UFC keeps giving him these spots that they would not give him if he were not bros with Conor McGregor. It's the only thing that makes him remarkable. He also then – he becomes kind of this like – like an almost Forrest Gump of MMA kind of figure. Okay, wow. I thought comparing him to Paige Van Zandt was going to be the worst that it got here for Artem Lobo. I hope John Kavanaugh doesn't hear this. He's in the background of like this important moment in MMA history where oh, true, because yeah. of the Nurmagomedov uh, feud and then the bus attack and he's the guy in the background making the home alone face. Like he, he that's a very Forrest Gumpian thing to be kind of a like front row spectator to history and to have played a small part in like the, the pivot point of it all. And yet you look at it and you're just kind of like, okay, skill wise, he does not seem like he belongs on the level with all these other people. Yeah. Do we feel bad at all for Artem Lobov? Just because he's the, basically the only person who got punished for the, the Conor McGregor pre UFC two twenty three bus attack at Barclay arena in, uh, in Brooklyn. Basically, he's the only guy who got punished. Well, I guess uh, the guy he was supposed to fight, the homie of Habib, who got pulled out of the Artem Lobov fight in the first place, got punished. But, like, Artem Lobov didn't come out ahead on the situation where Habib Nurmagomedov takes flight into the crowd to try to fight Dylan Dennis. A thing that Artem Lobov, by the way, almost had nothing to do with. He gets kind of a bad beat because he has to face Michael Johnson on short notice. Michael Johnson is not a pushover, comes nope. in, misses weight, right? Didn't he miss weight? Right. Uh, and then he ends up beating Artem Lobov. So it's like, I don't think necessarily that on the heels of three straight losses that Artem Lobov deserves to be in the UFC. At the same time, like, kind of a tough tough go for that guy, really. Yeah. Well, and I mean, some of that was the, some of the point that uh, John Kavanaugh made that, hey, he's not looking for easy fights. He is, and maybe to the detriment of his career, looking for tough fights. And that was one of the things they said on the broadcast was that he was, when they came around looking for a replacement, he he was given the choice of a few different people and he chose Michael Johnson supposedly because, you know, that's the the toughest fight and the one where there's the most to gain if you win. Uh, And yeah, like I I agree, the guy deserves his, his tough guy cred for doing that even when he can't seem to get close enough to hit somebody, he's still gonna come forward the entire fight. 
those are all like positive qualities that I think that we can observe and uh, congratulate him on. And at the same time, though, we do have to be honest with ourselves about this entire situation and what is happening here. Next question this week comes to us from Ed Figueroa, who writes, is it harder for foreign fighters to gain attention and respect in the crowded lightweight and welterweight divisions? In my opinion, Bilal Muhammad and David Tamer are two very talented and entertaining fighters, but they don't seem to get any attention outside of their fight night. Uh, They are also unranked, which for Tamer is hard to understand. I know the UFC has a global fan base, but it does appear the UFC marketing is aimed at fighters that they believe the U.S. audience will take to more easily. Please discuss. You know what? Below Muhammad from Chicago? Yeah, I think he is an American fighter. Uh, And that, it kind of leads me to what I was going to say in that I feel like occasionally foreign fighters, especially if there is a language barrier, face more of an uphill climb uh, than you know, English speaking Americans when it comes to appealing to other English speaking Americans at the same time, though, you got to recognize that mixed martial arts was basically built on the back of foreign fighters. Yes. Gracie, Anderson Silva, Fedor Emelianenko, you know, the list kind of goes on and on. Um, and, and just because people are from another country and they speak a different language, it has not stopped a lot of people from becoming popular stars in this sport. And that's why I think Bilal Conor Muhammad McGregor. kind of fits into... Yeah, did you just say Conor McGregor? <laughs> Conor McGregor, okay. foreign fighter. Uh, I think Bilal Muhammad does kind of fit into this discussion, though, because it, the thing is not that the fighters are foreign. The thing is that the UFC is damn near actively hiding them from us. Like, they've got so many fighters under contract. Uh, it's not like, you know, David Tamer or Bilal Muhammad gets a showcase spot anywhere except, you know like Moncton or something like that. So like you got to be looking at this sport with a magnifying glass, basically to even know about most of these people. Well, even if you are looking at it with a magnifying glass, you need to have the brain of an encyclopedia to just keep it all straight. Like even if you are the person who is sitting there watching prelims from Moncton, at four 30 in the afternoon on Saturday, front row, baby, even if like, and I say this as somebody who was watching the prelims at 4.30 in the afternoon on Saturday. But it's, you know, I cover this sport for a living, and it's kind of a regular thing now for me to sit down and watch the fights and go, oh, he's on this? Oh, yeah, okay, that guy. Yeah, all right, I remember that guy. Right. And, like, that just kind of happens pretty regularly because you just can't keep it all straight. And, like, you'll see somebody like this pop up. Like, you'll see, like, oh, yeah, here, Sean Strickland. I kind of I kind of vaguely remember Sean Strickland. Uh, you know, it feels like I saw him fight three four months ago or something. He's going to fight here. You know, he, he does well. You go, okay, yeah, good job for you, Sean Strickland. Then he disappears for another few months, and then he'll pop back up again. And you just, there's so much going on that you can't really keep track of it. And I, I wonder if that is, if it's a, a product of just the oversaturation, if it's just our way of looking at the sport is different now. Is it a larger cultural thing where it seems like there's just so much more noise coming at you constantly through so many different mediums? Because I can remember when the UFC had a pretty good system of like, all right, here are the Spike TV fight nights. And almost everybody you'd see on the at least the televised portion of a fight night, you'd be like, okay, I kind of know who this is. Either they were on The Ultimate Fighter, which people were still watching then, or like you'd heard of them somehow. The fight felt like it had some kind of meaning. And then the ones who would stack up some wins on that would end up in a pay-per-view. And you'd be like, I've fil- 
feel like without really trying to, I have followed this thread. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like that really happens anymore. And I think, you know, the previously mentioned Gregor Gillespie is always my favorite example of that because he has all those pieces in play. And yet you just you can't really follow it unless you are actively following his fishing adventures on Instagram like I do. Yeah, I think it's almost all. I mean, you bring up a lot of good points. Like, I think that there are multiple factors at work for for you know, the decline of the sport or why it's more difficult to follow the sport today than, than it kind of ever has been. But to me, it's all mostly uh, a function of the, the UFC expanding its live event schedule to the extent that it has. Because once you do that, you have to over oversaturate the market. You have to bloat the roster. You have so many people hanging around that it becomes totally impossible to even remember a person like David Tamer, even though he's a really good fighter, six and one, three and oh now in the UFC with wins, uh, some high profile wins, right? He's got a win over Lando Venata. Uh, so like, yeah, he's, the UFC's roster is an embarrassment of riches to the extent that it's almost impossible to keep track of them all to the, you know, a lot of them just seem like interchangeable pieces in this larger picture. And if, you know, especially since you, 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 there are so many events that you get one almost every weekend at this point. And, and Moncton is a little bit of an exception to that rule. But, uh, if you see Bilal Muhammad or David Tamer do something amazing, chances are you're going to forget about it by right. the following Friday or Saturday. Cause there's just another MMA event that comes down the pipe. So I don't know. It's all, uh, it's all, uh, uh, like symptoms of the same problem. As far as I'm concerned, let's do one more and then we got to move on. I'm going to do this one from former professional hockey player, uh, Keith Chuck Tachuk, Keith well, Tachuk. I hope we continue to hear from more professional hockey players. I feel like they're underrepresented. He writes, and this, you know, this is a broad question and could potentially open up uh, a much longer discussion that we don't really have time for this week. But he writes, why can't we just regulate PEDs and MMA? They improve recovery from both day-to-day stress of training for prize fighting and the long-term injuries that accompany said training and the actual fight. They extend fighters' careers and longevity. We ask these guys to go perform at a high level, then turn around and insist they do it while being quote-unquote clean, whatever the hell that means. A lot of this comes down to perception. The perception that USADA is working and therefore catching all the juicy sluts. Is that a typo? I don't... Is that... Is it supposed to be in there? I'm just going to say you. Uh, therefore, anyone who doesn't pop as clean as a whistle. But I mean, come Jesus. on. They're all on steroids. And he's got an asterisk next to that. And below it says Nathan Diaz. Ah, I see that's, it. That's a good. See what you did good there. One. Uh, why do we do this to ourselves? I also know that PEDs will give a competitive edge. But if it is regulated and everyone is able to use, wouldn't that negate the perceived competitive edge? Finally, I know some fighters insist that they're clean. And hell, maybe they are. Mark Hunt, I guess. But to me, it seems many are virtue signaling and using their knowledge regarding the perception of PEDs to get fans, keep pressure from USADA at bay, and stay under the radar from the discussion of quote-unquote cheating. Wouldn't a union help? Sorry for the length. Please discourse. Well, a union would always help. Uh, a bunch of other stuff. Here's my short answer to why we can't just regulate PEDs in MMA. Because you haven't solved the problem. You've just shifted it. Like, if you were saying, like, okay, how about if we just do this thing where they can, they're allowed to do some PEDs? I don't know if that would involve some things are still on the banned list and other things are newly allowed. Or if it's like you can do up to this level of PEDs. But as long as we're doing any kind of regulation of it at all, you're still going to come back to somebody has to be around to do the checking. Because there's going to be the guys that say, if a little bit of TRT is good, then a lot must be great. And either we're saying it's a damn free-for-all, and we're having guys out there uh, looking like science projects, 
or we're saying like, okay, we recognize that there are some benefits to this if it's done in a responsible manner, but then you still have to have somebody around checking to make sure it's being done in a responsible manner and you have to have some consequences when it's not. Like you just you just kicked the can down the road. You have not solved the problem. Yeah, I agree. I think the discussion about performance enhancing drugs, both in society and in sports, is pretty fluid. I think that, you know, as we continue to advance in our understandings and, you know, medical science's ability to use those substances to help both athletes and normal people, I think you're going to, the discussion is going to change a little bit. I think especially as it concerns uh, ordinary people, people who are not combat sports athletes, right? right? Like uh, my dad is 70 years old. If my dad wants to go get on testosterone, fucking awesome. Like that's probably going to be a great deal for him, but he's not, you know, John Jones or whatever. He's not punching guys. If it, right. It's going to, a lot of these substances are going to, in, you know, improve the quality of life for regular people, but I'm still not convinced that they belong in an athletic setting well, for a number of reasons. And some of those people, it's not going to improve their quality of life and, you know, might lead to other health risks. And then that's the thing that it becomes a price of entry into the sport. Yeah. Like if we're all, if we're saying like, here's the sport where you can do steroids and you can do all these different drugs. Then you kind of have to do them right. if you want to compete in this. It sport. sucks for the guy who doesn't want to do steroids, right. and and there's a lot of good reasons why he might not want to do steroids. I mean, it, it can do a lot of bad things to like your endocrine system. I've heard guys talk about how trying to get off of testosterone is just an absolutely terrible experience. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why I could see somebody might not want to do it, but if you make it so that it's allowed, then how would you feel like you could possibly compete with these guys and not do it? Right. I'm just going to say two reasons why I, I don't at this point really support PEDs and MMA for starters. I think this sport especially, but most athletics in general are already so skewed to people who have a ton of money. Like if True. you are not an affluent person or you are not one of these people who makes a full-time living in fighting, you just flat like can't afford the good steroids that the, and if you have to go fight, uh, you know, the, the biggest star in the sport who is making tons of money in your weight class, like, uh, you are already at a competitive, competitive disadvantage, even if nobody is taking steroids because that person isn't working at a factory right. on the side. Uh, they're probably getting better sports medicine than you are. They probably have better coaches than you do. They probably have better facilities than you do. Uh, you want to give them better drugs too? Like that just seems like, uh, you're stacking the deck too much in favor of people who have the means to use the best stuff. The other thing that I don't really feel all that keen about would be shifting more power within the structure of the sport to steroid doctors. Like, <laughs> you know, you think about Victor Conte, the guy who used to run Balco and like uh, was one of the key uh, doctors that was given baseball players like Barry Bonds performance enhancing drugs. Like, do you really want a dude like that to be the new Greg Jackson in a lot of ways? Cause you see right now, like these big trainers like Greg Jackson and, and John Cavanaugh and you know, people at AKA or uh, up in Seattle at, at uh, AMC Pancration or, you know, any of the other kind of like super MMA camps, those people are all already pretty powerful. Like everybody wants to go train there cause they got the best coaches. If you have a free for all, for PhDs, are you going to, or uh, PhDs, we ain't handing out PhDs in this sport. No, we do not have a PhD free-for-all yet. If you're having a, uh, a free-for-all for PEDs, I should say, uh, are people going to be like, oh man, I got to go train in Omaha because they got the best PEDs there. They got they got Doc Warwick. He, he got, he's got the best stuff. Now he's the most powerful person in mixed martial arts because he'll turn you into a fucking monster. Right. 
That just feels even more sleazy than what we already have. Well, and plus, we had the conversation earlier about the parts of your brain you have to turn off to watch mixed martial arts. Imagine how much worse that gets when it seems like everybody is uh, like a a walking cartoon character. And it's all a little ridiculous. Like, I think one of the things that we like about this sport and gravitate to, whether we admit it or, is not, or not, is that... We like being able to see like human beings push themselves to this level, push through right. some of this difficult stuff. And if you can tell yourself like, well, there are just all, you know, uh, guys on test tube greatness and that's the difference between them and everybody else. It doesn't seem quite as special anymore. Plus the stuff about like, Hey, it can help you recover from stuff. That's true. You, you wrench your knee or, or hurt your shoulder. Steroids can help you. It's not going to do anything for your brain though. Like it, it can prolong your career and end up taking more brain damage in the end, but it's not really going to mitigate some of those really dire consequences of the sport. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. There's a lot of new cool stuff going on in the Breakfast of Champions uh, right now. Also, it's just going to continue to evolve uh, and if you sign up for it and you start getting it in your inbox and for whatever re- weird reason you decide you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, then... Imagine my surprise when I fire up the social medias during what was already a very weird whirlwind week for me, and one of the first things I see pop up on my Twitter feed is news of an impending trade between 1FC and the UFC that would send a former men's uh, flyway champion, Demetrius Johnson, overseas and would bring long-time welterweight contender slash loudmouth Ben Askren to the octagon. My first reaction, and Ben, I think that this was probably the reaction of a lot of people once it kind of sunk in that this could be a real thing. My first reaction was, we could have been doing this the whole time. Because <laughs> like, if we could have been trading motherfuckers this whole time, why didn't the UFC put together five first-round draft picks and cash consideration for Fedor Emelianenko Back in 99, you know what I mean? Well, because the answer is, I guess, we, we couldn't have been doing this the whole time. The, calling this a trade, I think, oversimplifies exactly what's happening. I, I, th- I know that's the way everybody wants to think about it, and that's a thing that we're prepared to think about in terms of sports. Like, we're used to the idea of trade talks. But this was, for one thing, you need the two organizations to be on a somewhat friendly level, right. which how often does that happen? Like if Almost never when if, one of the organizations is the UFC. Right. Like, if the UFC is on a friendly level with you, it's probably because they don't see you as anything remotely close to a competitor for one reason or another. And if they don't see you as close to a competitor, who do you have that they're really interested in? So, and if you do have somebody that they would be interested in, why would you want to give that person up? You need all the people that people might be interested in that you can possibly get. So there are a lot of like built-in barriers to it. I think this is a 
weirdly specific situation in which it can work where we, we both can be friendly enough to say like, Hey, you're not getting much use out of that guy. I don't really have that much further use for this guy. What do you say? We both release our guys and then they sign. And plus, you know, Demetrius Johnson has the relationship to one FC through his coach, uh, Matt Hume, who has been involved in one FC for a long time. So he can kind of, you know, work through those channels. There's a lot of things present here that just aren't present in the other situations. To me though, when I heard about it, cause I heard the, you know, the rumors about it a little bit, but, and it kind of seemed like, again, like, Hey, this can't be real. Right. But I wondered how is this not just a screaming great deal? If you're one FC, because Ben Askren wasn't fighting for you anyway. He said he was done. You weren't getting any use out of him. So it's like, Oh, I, I release a guy who, is effectively decided he's not going to work for me anymore. And then I get one of the pound for pound best fighters in the world. Yes. Yes. I agree to that deal. Yeah. There's a lot of weird aspects of this, right? Not the least of which is the sort of like ongoing contentious relationship between Ben Askren and the UFC, which we've heard about for years Uh, and kind of like a back and forth as to why he never wound up in the octagon. And like, they just couldn't make, uh, the terms of the deal work. Remember they wanted to try to send him to the ultimate fighter at one point. They wanted to send him to world series of fighting. Oh, that's right. They wanted to send him to world series of fighting. Uh, and he balked at that. And then he went over to one M- one FC and he fought a bunch of guys that don't have Wikipedia pages. Uh, and now he's just going to come to like, as part of the, like the literally the first quote unquote trade that I've ever heard about in this sport, he's just going to, slide into the UFC and start fighting people. And we assume the welterweight division, like, how does that even work? Okay, here's my question to you. What is this more about? Because obviously some some opinions have changed in the UFC to make this even possible. You'll recall not that long ago Dana White saying Ben Askren was, quote, the most boring fighter in MMA history. I'd rather watch flies fuck. That is a quote from Dana White about Ben Askren. I mean, right. occasionally so, he can turn a phrase, okay. right? <laughs> Say a lot of things about Dana White, and we do, but... Occasionally, he can turn a phrase. Um, <laughs> the Okay, so he changes his mind about this. Is it because Ben Askren has made himself into enough of a personality, you know, through Twitter that people care about him, even if the fighting style is boring? As we've seen before with other MMA fighters, you can have a kind of boring fighting style, and if you have the right mix of other stuff, people won't really care that much. You can still get away with it. Uh, or is it that the UFC was kind of looking for some cover to get rid of men's flyweight. And that this is like a thing where you can be like, all right, we weren't crazy about how the men's flyweight thing was going. The guy who just won the title immediately wants to go up to 135. That works for us. What are we going to do with Demetrius Johnson? We shop him over there to 1FC. We get Ben Askren in return. And either Ben Askren turns into a something or he gets absolutely demolished. And we can be like, see, told you we had the best. Yeah. Yeah, one of the additional weird factors about this is like if you were to chart Ben Askren's career in terms of like popular appeal or interest, like this trade in like kind of a classically MMA way, really, when you think about it, this trade likely comes along when that has been at its all time lowest, right? Because the guy's essentially been retired uh, since his quote unquote like farewell fight against Shinya Aoki back in November of 2017. Uh, it was like almost a year ago. Uh, he's been kind of off the radar in but a he, lot of he ways. He manages to keep himself in the conversation through well, Twitter, basically. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you follow him on Twitter and, and like 
uh, keep up with, with the stuff that he's saying. Uh, maybe he's, there's still some interest there, but I feel like I went from not thinking about Ben Askren at all for almost an entire calendar year to being like, huh, I wonder what now they will do with him as a UFC welterweight or whatever it is. And game man, give the guy credit for coming out blasting because we knew he was going to yeah. right. And he gets, goes over there on, on Twitter and like basically with a call out shotgun, a yes. sawed off shotgun of call outs, just hoping to get one of them. Yeah. He's just, Gregor Gillespie style casting a line, <laughs> casting a net really hoping to just get one, yeah. just get one of these paydays. Well, and the welterweight division right now, you got a lot of people that you can clap at and who might clap back. And then the next thing you know, you got something cooking there. That's not a bad idea. You know, he's not dumb. He sees the way that this thing has worked for other people. He can put it to work for him. Uh, it does seem interesting that you go and you get this guy as a top welterweight contender right off the bat. And he says, Oh yeah, me and the champion are friends and we are not fighting. So get that out of your heads right now. And you're going to go, well, okay. I wonder how, like, if that's the kind of thing where we're all sitting around going, well, maybe Tyron Woodley won't be the champ that long, or maybe they'll change their minds when there's enough money involved. Uh, because otherwise, it kind of throws a little bit of cold water on everybody's excitement, does it not? Well, maybe in some ways. Like, I don't know if Ben Askren versus Tyron Woodley would be a, a, a fight that would set any records or, like, light the pay-per-view world mm-hmm. on fire. It would be certainly very interesting inside the MMA bubble. Better or worse than Flies Fucking. Uh, we better, I would think, that than flies. Do flies fuck? Or is there like a... Pretty sure flies fuck. Okay, man. All right. I just never thought of it. You just it. think like one like lays the eggs and yeah. one comes along. Fertilizes them? I mean, they don't have much time. That's true. They are very busy. Yeah. And the lifespan is short yeah. for a fly. So mm-hmm. I hope they're having fun, whatever they're doing. Uh, so in their wild oats. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, uh, Ben Askren against Tyron Woodley. Yes. Like, I feel like if you're bringing Ben Askren in, it's either a complete smokescreen like you just said, to kind of like get rid of the flyweight division, which frankly would be quite sad if that's where we're going with all this. Uh, or you got to bring him in for some kind of super fights, which I don't know that Ben Askren necessarily fits the bill in any of those, but like maybe you can book him against George St. Pierre like he wants to do. Maybe you could book him against, I'm just going to say Conor McGregor because that's the guy everybody in the, on the planet wants to why, fight. Why would you do that? Uh, the George St. Pierre thing, obviously, like that one really appeals to me and I have no serious hope that we're going to get it. But that to me seems like if I could do anything, if you give me Ben Askren and in the UFC and you say, all right, you get to decide what to do with him. I book him against GSP and in a classic like MMA wish fulfillment sense where, all right, let's find out who the best welterweight of several years ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it seems like things must have devolved a long way between the UFC and Demetrius Johnson. Don't you think? Like, I think if people who have listened to this show for any amount of time know that this co-main event podcast is generally in favor of Demetrius Johnson. He's a fantastic fighter. He's so why wouldn't one he? of the best all-time fighters we've ever seen in and this just a sport. nice guy. And a nice guy. Uh, it almost feels like they're just sending him away just to do it or just, and like maybe things and I imagine Demetrius Johnson thinks things would be better for him. If he went over there and fought in an organization where his co- longtime coach trainer slash mentor has some political uh, capital. Uh, so like maybe it's a thing that makes both organizations happy, but at the same time, like for the UFC to just kind of agree to ship Demetrius Johnson off, they must've been about out of options. I would think. Well, from some of the rumors that were flying around, it sounded like maybe after the title change hands and 
the UFC might have been thinking about getting rid of the division just after that point, like kind of seeing the opportunity, like, hey, we never really felt like it was paying off big time. We have a guy who wants to go up and wait now, and he has the belt. Maybe now is the time to get And as soon as that possibility gets floated, maybe if you're Demetrius Johnson, you start thinking about an exit strategy. Yeah. And it's not like he feels like his services would really be highly missed. I mean, if he if he's thinking about it, he's probably going to go, well, you know what? Let me go over there to one championship. Maybe they appreciate uh, a a pound for pound great because they don't have anybody who kind of fits that bill. Uh, maybe they have a more a bunch of smaller fighters that I can have a whole new series against right. where I don't have to just fight the same people over and over again. Plus, he's talked openly before about how much he likes the idea of like traveling the world and collecting belts. Maybe that's a part of it for him. Like I can see why he would look at the way the wind was blowing here and be like, maybe now is the time to get out. Having you think he's having coffee with Josh Barnett out there in Seattle, and they're talking about being Ronins, just like yeah. they uh, are masterless samurai who walk the earth looking for challenges. They're definitely at some weird organic coffee shop, uh, comparing beard care tips, talking about being Ronins. All right, did you have an Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? You want to do one? Yeah, okay, go ahead. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week is going to be basically, I'm going to. I'm going to tell you some things that happened in mixed martial arts. Oh, you're going to tell me? Yeah. Okay. Is this a, a quiz? Are they all real? Are some of them fake? Is it two truths and a lie? They're not all real, Jed. They're not all real. Do I have to choose the one that's not real? Is that what we're doing? Yes. Okay. I'm glad you involved me in this because I didn't have an are you fucking kidding okay, me this well, week. So then, then I'm going to kind of give you an are you fucking my kidding me. My are you fucking kidding me was that I spent nine days in the pick you with waiting for my 18 month old to bounce back. So yeah, I'm glad we're doing this. Let's go. I'm ready. Okay. That one's fake. John Jones says, uh, give him two years, he can compete with the best boxers in the world. Do I get to hear them all, or do I have to go with just like one, one at a time? You can hear them all. How many are there, first of There's all? There's three. Are, are they all real? Is one of them fake? One of them is fake. Okay, so it is two truths and a lie. Yes. Okay. All John right. Jones says, give him two years, he'll compete with the best boxers in the world. Okay, well, I'm just going to guess. I'm not, this is not my answer, but I kind of know that that's true. It sounds like something he would say. Go ahead. Tyrone Woodley also says, thinking about getting his release from the UFC, trying his hand at boxing. Okay. Stefan Bonner, arrested for DUI, held at gunpoint by concerned bystanders. Oh my God, those all sound so real, Ben. I'm going to say the one that's fake is Tyron Woodley trying to get his... You are correct. Okay. Yeah. Unless maybe he has. I, I, I think I made it up, but it's entirely possible. But uh, it's so also Stefan real. Bonner was arrested for DUI and was held at gunpoint that's- by... Concerned citizens? According to TMZ, in, in, uh, somewhere in Nevada, crashed his car while under the influence, suspected to be under the influence uh, by some concerned citizens, one of whom was armed with a gun because we're in fucking America. Open carry, motherfucker. Uh, pulled it out, got him on the ground until police could arrive. Well, you know, uh, an inebriated Stefan Bonner would be scary because yeah. Stefan Bonner is an enormous human. Uh Still, somebody pulled out on on Stefan Bonner. Yeah, are you are you prepared to shoot Stefan Bonner in that situation? I, I wouldn't be. I, I wouldn't have a I'd gun on me. Uh, I wouldn't have my Sig Sauer P220 or whatever strapped to my tactical holster or my cargo shorts or whatever you're wearing in Nevada. Oh, yeah. You're wearing a cargo shorts with a tactical holster for sure. Got the wow. laser sight on that bad boy. Well, that is extremely are you fucking kidding me worthy, sir. Are you Nicely done. Uh, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back. Round number two.
Well, Jed, a little over 6,000 people flooded the Avenir Center in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada on Saturday night for UFC Fight Night 138. I, I mean, I just, I get goosebumps talking about it. But here was an instance where, you know, you get through, I think, 12 fights leading up to the main event. And if you find, if you actually sat through all of that, you do get rewarded by seeing a couple guys who might actually matter in the light heavyweight division. Anthony Smith goes out there, kind of waits out uh, Volkan Ozdemir for two rounds, and then pounces on him in the third, puts him away late in the third round with a, a rear naked choke submission once blood is just flowing out of Volkan Ozdemir's nose, and he says, you know, running down his throat and choking him. And now Anthony Smith, you see, he's got the, the size and the athleticism for the division. Here's a smart performance by him, a little bit of a mature performance. Here he does something that we weren't sure whether or not he could do at light heavyweight. I mean, he beat Rashad Evans, he beat Shogun Hua, and everybody's going, all right, but can you beat a contender of today? And he goes out there against Volkan Ozdemir, and he does beat a contender of today. Yeah. Now it seems like he's earned the right to step into that top echelon of the light heavyweight division, where, as we've noted in the past, things get kind of scary. Is Anthony Smith ready for that? Um, you ready to think of him as a capital G guy in the light heavyweight division? Well, yeah, I think he's a capital G guy, but on the base of the f- basics of the fact that it's pretty stinking easy to be a capital G guy in the 205 pound division. Like there's just not a lot of of depth there. So like, yeah, man, Anthony Smith 3 and 0 in the division just got a win over the secret of the use Vulcan Uzdemir. Uh he deserves to g- get a contender fight, I think. Like, I mean, wasn't this a contender fight? Light, yeah, I was just going to say, light heavyweight's so crazy, and like we obviously don't know what's going to happen with the title. We don't really know who's going to win the John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson fight. We assume it's going to be John Jones, but if that happens, we don't know what happens after that. We don't know if John Jones might fight Daniel Cormier at light heavyweight. We don't know if John Jones might go up to heavyweight in search of becoming yet another champ champ. Uh, so depending on how the dice shook out, man... It wouldn't be all that surprising to see Anthony Smith tumble into a 205 pound title fight, right? At this point, like if that's what the UFC announced, wouldn't you kind of be like, "Oh, okay, I guess, yeah," not slightly nodding and and uh, hashtag will probably watch. Yeah, I, I mean, I it would not surprise me if that's what happened next. And if I were Anthony Smith's manager, here's where I might be telling him, like, "All right, hey, we're not doing anything for the rest of the year, man. Take it off, heal up." Uh, maybe work on some adding some new stuff to the toolbox because yeah. we're waiting to see what happens with John Jones and Alex Gustafson, and then we're waiting to also see what Daniel Cormier decides to do because that could really affect your whole outlook. Yeah, Anthony Smith is an interesting dude. He's obviously uh like a obviously a great fighter, pretty fun to watch, and for the most part, uh, he's he's articulate. He seems interesting. He seems like a pretty like easy to like guy. Uh, but I don't know necessarily if this performance against Vulcan Ozdemir is one that makes me go, yep, future of the division. Like, uh, it's kind of funny that the official poster of the fight advertises how fast these guys win, right? For Vulcan Ozdemir, it says 15 second knockout for Anthony Smith. It says 22 second knockout. And then they go out and like, uh, kind of have essentially what looked like a, you know, even though these guys both hit really hard, like kind of a sparring match for the first round where they feel each other out. The second round, largely ground-based. The third round, Vulcan Ozdemir appears to sort of get beat up and get tired, and then he gets choked out, uh, reportedly exactly like Anthony Smith thought would happen. But at the same time, like, number one, since I didn't stay up and watch this entire event with all of you guys, I was kind of wondering, like, 
if it was after midnight and you had sat through seven hours of UFC fight and, and this is what you get between these two guys, does it feel worth it? And question two, like, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a performance that like bowled me over in its awesomeness, even though I like Anthony Smith and it was a good win for him. Yeah. Well, it does make you wonder because he said afterwards, you know, I knew the first two rounds were going to be kind of ugly that I had to get through his early power and his strength, that that was going to be a problem for me. And I had to get, wear him down, chip away at him and get him tired. And if that has to be the way you approach Volkanovs Demir, how do you deal with John Jones? Because you, unless you're hoping you get party time, John Jones, like then maybe you have a chance you can you can get him tired. I enjoy the notion of party time, John Jones. Yeah. By the way, you don't want all business, John Jones. No, you don't want coming off a suspension, John Jones. No, you don't want John Jones still thinking about Daniel Cormier, John Jones. Yeah, because that guy shows up in really good shape. Like, can I? Can I get him a week after spring break? <laughs> you know, like that's the that's the John Jones that you you hope to get. Then you you might have a shot at getting him tired. But if against Vulcan Ozdemir, you have to you feel like you can't just go you know fire on fire and throw right back at him and out you know either be faster or stronger or better technique than him. Then I don't see how you are able to find the weakness in John Jones's armor that you're going to get through. But again. It feels even a little unfair to be applying that metric to people because it's you're then you're sitting there you're looking at the division looking at possible contenders and going I don't know though can he if he doesn't seem like he could beat the best fighter in the world why bother I mean that's why we have the fights is to find out if you can beat the best fighter in the world and honestly you beat Volkan Ozdemir the state of the light heavyweight division now if John Jones beats Alexander Gustafson Daniel Cormier sticks with his plan to retire after Brock Lesnar uh, then. They say, all right, John Jones versus Anthony Smith. I got no real problem with that. I also am not not throwing down 10 bucks I don't want to see again on Anthony Smith. No, and there was stuff in this Volkan Ozdemir fight that I didn't necessarily like for Anthony Smith when thinking about him going up against the elite in that division. Uh, he got a couple of takedowns in this fight, but I wouldn't describe them as overpowering takedowns. They were takedowns where when Volkan Ozdemir hit the ground, I was like, oh, he got that? word uh and then he and then anthony smith got taken down in much the same way like volkan ozdemir launched into what appeared to be like a half-hearted blast double uh and ended up getting it and, uh, and got kept down for most of the round yeah so like there was stuff going on here that made me feel a little bit nervous for anthony smith in the future uh but you know what is actually kind of an interesting fight would be anthony smith against alexander gustafson that would like if that went down that's, you know, and just in terms of a matchup of styles and the kind of fight that you expect to get out of those two guys, I don't know necessarily know that I would have any complaints. Now, obviously, we got to move hell and earth and have a an insane upset in the upcoming fight for the vacant 205 pound title. I don't know if it's an insane upset, but it's a be it would a, be a surprise, pretty big surprise at this point. You know what? I am looking at the UFC light heavyweight rankings right now. And maybe owing to the fact that John Jones does not appear on them because of his suspension and because the champion Daniel Cormier uh, has moved on to the heavyweight division, they are even worse than I thought. You still feeling like you want to shut it down? Because you got Alexander Gustafson at one, Volkan Ozdemir at two, who just lost to Anthony Smith, who came in at 10. The rest of the top 10, Ben, is Jan Blakovitz. Is he? he That's your number three. Ilir Latifi, the bricklayer, who we love. Jimmy Manua, Dominic right. Reyes, oh, right. Beeston, 25-16, Corey Anderson, 25-16, whatever, Glover Tashira, and Ovin St. Preux. 
That's everybody in the top 10, not including Anthony Smith. Wow. That, my friend, trade that division to 1FC. <laughs> trade just the be, whole thing? Yeah. Just keep a couple guys around and trade Or the maybe we, we shop them over to KSW and be like, send us some of those bodybuilders. Yeah, absolutely. Just, Especially since PEDs are going to be legal. Yeah, if we're, if we're regulating yeah, that. Yeah, me, send me Pujanowski. You know what was weird for me watching this event? For one thing, it does need to be noted uh, and kind of drove home the point when I hear everybody talking about the World Series game on Friday and there's going, longest World Series game in history. And, and I'm a going, sport oh, really? known for its length. Yeah, and a sport they are not exactly known as this like lightning thrill ride is baseball. Longest World Series game in history. And I'm going, how long? Seven hours and 20 minutes. And I'm like... Man, that's just UFC fight night on FS1. Yeah, we just call that Saturday. Yeah. Man. And then, sure enough, the next night we get, like, I think a 13-fight card here. Uh, it runs almost exactly seven hours. And not that's not remarkable at all in MMA. I think I said it was Dave Doyle that I saw tweet this over the weekend, but I agree with him that ESPN, once they get their hooks into these fight night events, man, they got to do something. I have no faith that they will. I think everybody just sees it as we're just creating content here and we, we don't expect you to watch it all and we're not thinking about the long-term ramifications of programming you not to watch it all. Uh, the weird thing for me watching this though was like I sit through the entire thing, right? And I sit through the first two rounds of the main event. In between round two and three, I hear the unmistakable sounds of order falling apart into chaos upstairs Uh-oh. in my house and the kind of... The kind of crying where I know, like, okay, my wife needs a hand with this. Uh, I need to go up there and help out. And I go up there, and there's vomit everywhere, and my oldest daughter's crying. And so we got to clean that stuff. And it's like, you know how it is, especially when you're a little more experienced with, you have a couple kids, and it's like something like that happens, and you both become just like a pit crew. Just like, sheets off the bed, we're the person in the bath, cleaning up vomit. And like, you know, you just go into kind of autopilot mode. And I'm doing it really quickly because I feel like the fight is still going on. Last I saw, Vulcan Ozdemir kind of in control of this fight, looking pretty good. And I race back down just in time to catch Anthony Smith's celebration. Wow. Yeah. All right. It goes. That's how it goes sometimes, man. It'd be like that sometimes. Still smells like vomit on the inside of my nose. So gross. Uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, I feel like there was a hot minute where it seemed like UFC 230 might shape up as one of the better top-to-bottom cards of the year, back when we thought we might get Dustin Poirier against Nate Diaz, back when the specter of Valentina Shevchenko versus Joanna Yetjejic was floating around, uh, Luke Rockhold versus Chris Weidman was supposed to be on this thing, Yoel Romero uh, was supposed to be on this thing. Was he fighting Paulo, Paulo Costa? Was that, that was going to be the fight? discussed. I don't know if we ever got to the stage of finalizing it, but it was discussed that UL Romero versus Paulo Costa for the getting off the bus championship. Right. That, I mean, they weren't going to fight. They were just going to go down to Muscle Beach and have a pose. It's going to be a pose down. Okay. Uh, that's not happening as as it as it turns out. And I, I bought all this baby oil. What am I supposed to do with it? You'll figure something out. Okay. Uh, at this point, I mean, I don't know if you can say that about this card. There's interesting stuff going on here. Derek Brunson versus Israel Adesanya. Uh, David, the executive branch, is on is on this thing. Chrisman Weidman versus Jacare Souza. Okay. All right. That seemed to really come as a huge shock to you when I told you about that, that well, just fight was on this card. Just because I had no idea. Like, I'm sitting there 
in the uh, in the ignorant bliss of thinking I'm still getting Weidman uh, and and Rockhold, and then you tell me it's it's Jacare. You imagine the dominoes that had to fall in my head to even make sense of that. I feel like the dominoes fell enough for me that I can get excited about it. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a you know it's a middleweight it's a good middleweight fight. But we're here to talk about the big banana, Daniel Cormier against Derek Lewis. Uh, how excited? What's your hype level here? Like uh, the the pay per view card looks solid, if not outstanding. But I think Daniel Cormier against Derek Lewis on short notice is kind of a, a fun party that we've all decided to get up for. Yeah, it is. The key is thinking about it the right way, in the right terms. Like you said, fun party. Fun party where we can all agree that it's perfectly okay for us to talk about one man's balls a whole bunch. Like That's the kind of thing that we, we've got to think of this as. And yet, it is for the damn heavyweight title. Yeah, and again, what's going to happen here? Daniel Cormier comes in as the champion with much bigger things on the horizon in in the form of a potential fight against Brock Lesnar, a potential fight against John Jones. Uh, you know, either of those things may well set the record for pay-per-view buys in the UFC if he can just get to them. So uh, you know he's not thinking about losing to Derek Lewis. On the other hand, like we talked about once before, the last time we saw Daniel Cormier in a quote-unquote fun party fight on short notice when he fought uh, Anderson Silva, DC took a very conservative approach. And so I wonder what what he, approach he will take uh, to fighting the Black Beast here because I think we all know there's only about one way Derek Lewis can win this fight. And Daniel Cormier obviously knows that. So his approach here... Uh, I think it's bound to be kind of conservative, isn't it? Unless he just throws caution to the wind and he's like, I can strike with this guy. No, there's no way he's going to do that. I think we all know exactly how this one is going to go, or at least how Daniel Cormier is hoping it's going to go, is that you're going to take him down. You're not going to take any huge chances with him on the ground. Your your goal is going to be for the first round or two to just keep him there, to get him tired, to beat him up a little bit, but to not try to go crazy looking for a finish on the ground, wait for him to get tired and lose his ability to just stand up the way he likes to do. And you're just going to try to keep pouring on the ground and pound, either make him quit, uh, get a referee stoppage or make him do something dumb and give up a submission. You're, there's no part of you if you're Daniel Cormier who was thinking, I don't know, maybe I'll just go out there and try to knock him out. Yeah, especially, you know, coming out of AKA where we assume they're going to have a reasonably smart game plan. Uh, they are immediately on the heels of just having game plan to the shit out of Conor McGregor, essentially. Uh, so, yeah, you'd expect Daniel Cormier, who essentially kind of, uh, I don't know if outsmarted is the right word, but outmaneuvered Stipe Miocic in his last fight uh, with a good deal of... of playing possum in, in certain ways. Well, he's also coming into this one with a hand that is maybe not a hundred percent. There you go. Like he's talked about now how things he, are getting interesting. He can't really make a fist. And you know, that was a couple weeks ago, so maybe it's better off now, but he also made the remark like, you know, I don't really want to punch anything with it a hundred percent in the gym because if it's going to get re-injured, I would rather it happen in the fight. Uh, than in the gym where if it gets re-injured, you don't get paid, basically. And if it gets re-injured in the fight against Derek Lewis, at least, you probably feel like, oh, I have other avenues to victory that don't require me to necessarily ball up my fist and punch this man in the face repeatedly. And I can understand why Daniel Cormier would feel that way. What I wonder is, are we all rooting for, hey, let's go out there, have some crazy fun wobble on the tightrope a little bit, but keep this Daniel Cormier-Brock Lesnar thing together? Or are we out there going, like, give us the chaos, baby. Have Derek Lewis pull off the huge upset, and then let's just get fucking ridiculous. 
I don't know that I'm the right person to ask that question as I've recently uh, affirmed that Daniel Cormier has taken over the top spot as my favorite MMA fighter of all time, both because of his uh, wrestling background and his essential dadness. Yes. Uh, so I'm rooting for the former. I would like us to have a f- crazy, fun, uh, somewhat stressful time here that ultimately results in the status quo. But I also recognize the wonderfulness that would be the Derek Lewis UFC heavyweight title reign. There wouldn't be a lot to dislike about that for however many minutes it would last. I assume until if Stipe Miocic, if Derek Lewis beats Daniel Cormier, Stipe Miocic, Miocic is jumping off the couch and just and running out the front door, <laughs> leaving it open and just running as fast as he can to wherever Derek Lewis just is. Just heading east. With the, the WWE money in the bank briefcase to cash that sucker in. Uh, but <laughs> I digress. Uh, what do we, what about Derek Lewis's actual chances here though, Ben? Like he, the guy's never been choked out that we've seen in an MMA fight. He does that thing where he gets taken down, lays on the ground for a while to recuperate and then, uh, levitates, just gets up (laughs) somehow. If he can do, I mean, he's also never fought Daniel Cormier. He's never fought anybody even approaching Daniel Cormier, uh, especially not from the, in the fights that we've seen in the UFC, so, like, what can Derek Lewis do here besides just being much huger? Well, he can get taken down, lay there, study the ceiling for a little while. Then the, my favorite part about his get-up strategy is that he seems to, to do, like, a full-body sigh just before he does it. Like, he's just going, okay, enough of this. And then he gets up. Um, if, you're, if you're Derek Lewis, you're going in there telling yourself you're going to get taken down. And you got to just get back up and you got to retain the ability to still land that blow, even if it's late in the fight. And that is like the one thing I think that he really does have on his side is that, you know, we've talked about other fighters before, like Conor McGregor, who for all his, you know, one punch power, you get him past the second round and he doesn't have a whole lot of knockouts that he can point to as proof that 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 power still can uh, come and save him late in a fight that he's losing. And Derek Lewis, it's kind of his thing. He's been in several fights where he does get very tired. He looks like he's n- not going to have the ability to do much of anything at all, and he can still land that one punch. That's what you got to depend on if you're Derek Lewis. The the fact that if you just don't lose, you always have a chance to win. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Five we saw rounds. That's five five rounds to start on your feet, man. Right. That we certainly saw against Alexander Volkov that he is dangerous right up until the end of the fight. Uh, I think you're right about Daniel Cormier and game plan wise. Uh, you do want to take Derek Lewis down. I think you're right that you largely want to make him tired, make him humble, uh, play a position game with him. I also think like, you don't want to take too many chances on the ground, like you said, but I also think you want to finish it as quickly as you can. Cause you don't want to have five times where you have to stand up with Derek Lewis. I think that if you are Daniel Cormier, uh, you assumedly are in great shape, but maybe not taking this one as seriously as some of the other ones. So like if you're Daniel Cormier, you don't want there to be a fifth round of this thing. You don't want to be out there with Derek Lewis 20 plus minutes into this, into this fight uh, with everyone looking at their watches being like, why is this still underway? But I also think that you don't want to go in there thinking, all right, we're going to take him down once in the first round and then, we're going to beat him before he ever has a chance to get back up on his feet. Cause I, I think that that 
is maybe how other people have approached Derek Lewis, thinking, okay, the guy has such a weakness in the ground game that I'll just go out there and exploit that. And then the next thing you know, you know, he, I mean, he has like fourth round knockouts, third round knockouts. Like he, he actually can still do that. Like you got to be wary of that. I think if you're Daniel Cormier, you want to spend the first round kind of softening him up, breaking his will. The second round really exhausting him and either look for a finish late in the second or in the third where you're just going to – you want him to get so tired and so mentally defeated that he's just stuck on his back covering up as you're you know, elbowing through the spaces in his guard. Like I think that that's a better approach than thinking I'm going to go out there and I'm going to submit him. I mean I think the only way – not the only way. I think the most likely way if Daniel Cormier gets a submission, it's because he punches him in the face so much that Der- Derek Lewis just rolls over on his belly and gives up the choke. I think that for Daniel Cormier, this is kind of a classic wrestler situation where you have to break the guy's will. I'm sure that's what he's planning on. Does Derek Lewis have the kind of notoriety at this point that's going to get people to buy pay-per-views to watch him, have him watch him fight Daniel Cormier? Or is this a check the news on Sunday morning to see how this thing turned out for the lion's share of the MMA pay-per-view watching public? I mean, I think if you're in the bubble, then you're definitely considering buying this pay-per-view. But it's not like... Like, I'm surprised the doctor knew about Derek Lewis. I'll say that. I was too. So, well, I guess we'll see how how we do here. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. You don't have anything to just say? No. You got just saying stuff? Okay, I got to just say stuff. Okay, Ben's going to roll out of just saying stuff here. Um, You know, we mentioned earlier in the show the uh, John Cavanaugh's response to the people uh, with their, their jokes, all their funny jokes online about Artem Lobov. They got jokes. Yeah. And in his long uh, Facebook response to this, he referenced uh, a quote that MMA fighters and coaches and people absolutely love, the Teddy Roosevelt man in the arena quote. Heavy sigh. The st- that it is not the critic who counts or, or points out where the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Only, only the man in the arena uh, who counts. I guess I'm just saying, one, I understand why MMA people love this quote so much. The the imagery is right kind of on brand. I mean, they are the man in the arena, like in a very literal sense. Yeah, quite literally. Uh, they also do not like criticism, and this quote often gets – nobody trots this quote, quote out after they win. Uh, I'm just saying that. I'm also just saying – we might want to think about how like this quote has historically been used by some people because Nixon used this quote in his resignation speech. And that was one where the critics did count kind of an awful lot. Critics kind of uncovered uh, the scandal that led to the downfall of his presidency. And that was one where I think we were all kind of justified in pointing out where the doer of deeds could have done them better or perhaps not at all. I'm just saying maybe we need to just get rid of this one. Maybe this, I know everybody has to retire this quote altogether for MMA purposes. I know how much people love it, but uh, it's not just the all purpose shield against criticism that people seem to think it is. I'm just saying, just saying, I'm glad you, glad you came with that. I'm just saying, I'm just happy to be here. Just quite literally happy to be here this week. Uh, Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's show. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happened at UFC 230, and then we'll look ahead to something else. Is there? What are we doing? Are we back into the thick of it now, or is um, there more uh, more time off here for us? Well, you're going to get turn around, ride around, and get hyped for Korean Zombie versus Yair Rodriguez. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Plus, we'll be coming back on Friday for all of the uh, 
the patrons. That's right. First yeah. ever Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon Power Hour. That's right. If you are down uh, with the, the the Patreon, you will get a notification through that when the Power Hour is available for your listening pleasure. Um, and we'll also probably mention it on the various social medias and everything. But, uh, yeah, you can still get in there is what I'm saying before the, the barn door. What do you you got to be a $5? $5 patron? Who gets this? $5, $10? This ain't for everybody, right? No, it's not. It's either for the five dollar or the five and ten dollar. I can't remember. Okay, we'll have to we'll, go back we'll and look at our thing. Figure it out, I guess. I think it is for five dollars okay, and up. Great. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. And with the ten dollar, you get the uh, the newsletter. Newsletter. The tips for the well. Which I'm excited about. I got I've a lot of tips. Got a bunch of stuff that I want to recommend. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. We also need to figure out how we're going to make that newsletter. Yeah, we we should do that. Well, if you want it to be run through the Patreon, then that sounds like a you thing. You son of a bitch. I mean, if we want to do it through through MailChimp, then we got to figure that out. Different thing. It's a you problem, is what I'm saying. I got stuff going on. <laughs>